There's a few questions people have brought up today, so I'll begin with the first one. It says, how to counteract the five niwarana, or five hindrances that arise during meditation? It's quite a big topic as those five hindrances cover a whole range of mental states and obstructions to... They say they obstruct us from doing any good. So it's a hindrance to being generous and kind, hindrance to keeping sila, hindrance to meditating to develop samadhi, hindrance to uh, developing insight. So the hindrances that are blocking us on every level of our practice. In brief, I'm sure you've heard this all before, but in brief, the five hindrances uh, Gama Chanda, as we say, sensual desire, desire and an attraction and attachment to the objects of our senses, so sights, sounds, taste, smell, touch. Second is payapata, uh, it's like ill will, aversion. So the opposite of attraction, aversion. Pushing away things that we don't like. Experiences, people, sensations and so on. The third is tinamita, it's uh, often called sloth and torpor. <coughs> can be dullness can be apathy, sleepiness, drowsiness. Uh, you might say some forms of boredom come into that as well. The fourth hindrance is hutacha kukucha, restlessness and agitation of mind. Particularly agitation based on things you've said and done that you're thinking about and particularly the unskillful or negative things you've said and done or thought about in the past and thinking about them over and over again and the results of what you've done in the past negatively so you know worry anxiety and so on or else projections into the future Anxiety based on an agitation based on you know, thinking what might happen, particularly the worst that might happen. Thoughts about the good that you haven't done yet, unfinished business. Uh, and also a whole host of more mundane mental agitation, just endlessly thinking and concerning what the mind with all kinds of business but in an unskillful way that doesn't lead to any real wisdom, understanding or benefit, just agitation of mind. The last hindrance is sceptical doubt. 
there's uncertainty about what you're doing, why. So in terms of meditation, it tends to be, you know, what am I doing here? What should I be meditating on? You know, even if you've been given a meditation technique and you're trying it, you start doubting, you think, is this the right meditation technique for me? Will this meditation get anywhere? Am I the right kind of person to do this meditation technique? Uh, does the teacher know what he's talking about? And on and on it goes. Skeptical doubt that all these hindrances are hindrances. They prevent the mind from calming down. And as you meditate, you'll notice them come up one after another. Maybe one is more dominant at a particular time. So sometimes we have a lot of sensual desire. You know, before a meal you meditate, might, maybe you're just thinking about food. Or if you're an artist or a musician, you might have a lot of thoughts about art or music. Or you might be thinking about some TV program or a movie you've seen or you want to see and on and on. Or you think about a person. Uh, sensual desire just clouds the mind, comes up and then maybe it's replaced by ill will after a while. Other times we have ill will is the sort of dominant hindrance. Ill will towards a painful feeling in the body or towards distraction. You're meditating and there's noise and disturbance. You know, who are these people disturbing my meditation? <laughs> or towards different conditions, or ill will stimulated by memories, you know, just remembering things people have said and done or we've said and done in the past that immediately brings up ill will. Sloth and torpor can come up, especially after a meal. Your stomach is full, easy to just start nodding and drowsy, difficult to put your attention on a very subtle and refined meditation object like the breath. Even at the best of times, it's difficult. Uh, if you've got a full stomach or you're fairly tired, or sometimes you're just somebody who's used to a lot of stimulation, thinking, talking, doing things, and then you come to a place like this and you sit down quietly and your mind just, you know, you think a lot for a while and the next thing you, know, you just drop off to sleep. There's no stimulation, nothing to keep you interested. Restless agitation, skeptical doubt, all of these hindrances pop up from time to time and you'll notice as you meditate and that, you know, it's what's taking your mind's energy away from the object. So the simple solution to any of the hindrances is establishing mindfulness of your object. So if your object is the breath, well, direct your attention, your mind's attention to focus on that feeling of the breath at the tip of the nostrils maybe. Breathe in, breathe out and find that feeling and keep redirecting your attention there, sustaining your attention there and allowing the mind to relax and just make that very, very clear, that sensation of the breath going in and out. So that has to be backed up by effort and energy and patience and a good attitude. 
and you're willing to work understanding well yeah I do have some of these hindrances arising this is natural for human beings we have our distractions and our different states of mind but I'm going to work through them not just give in to them follow them like I usually do so you're redirecting your mental energy towards your object and therefore away from the particular hindrance sometimes the hindrances though are very very powerful and they you know if you have a you have a particular emotion arise and you're struggling you just want to be with the breath and you can't stick with the breath it, it won't work oh what do you do then well you may have to use some wisdom some reflection wise reflection directed to those hindrance that or that particular hindrance you're just becoming mindful you, you you might be aware or have this hindrance but you can't let it go yet so just mindfulness you, you haven't got enough mindfulness enough strength of mind to direct the mind away from the hindrance to the breath so you probably have no choice but to investigate it a little bit maybe learn about it where's this coming from you're learning where's it coming from what what's its source maybe there's a particular issue that's been bothering you and you can trace your mental state back to that issue and then you might have to remedy it maybe if it's sensuality you know just come some kind of interest in some particular experience you've had or that you want dwelling on that and maybe you just contemplate the simple fact that that experience is impermanent your different pleasant sense experiences we have seeing things we like hearing things we like tasting things we like and so on how all those experiences rise and pass away they don't last very long you have a really a delicious meal but it only lasts maybe 15 20 minutes and it's gone it's over and you just remind yourself you recollect impermanence or if it's a bit tougher than that you have to go look into it or oh, this thing i'm stuck on you know is, is it really as attractive as my mind is telling me at this time am i tricking or deluding myself and if it's food you maybe ask yourself you know this food that i eat well when it's on the plate i see it looks nice smells nice attractive but once it goes into the mouth changes doesn't it you know, nobody wants to re-eat the same mouthful uh, this is a practice monks do when I was a young monk they taught us this practice you take the first mouthful of your meal you chew it and you spit it out into your hand again and you look at it is that as nice as it was a few moments ago and nobody wants a mouthful of food covered in saliva it's changed from being very attractive nice smelling to something unpleasant and no one else would want that either you just contemplate that to balance your mind bring it back to a normality where it's not just obsessed with the sense object but it sees oh has the other side the side of the unattractive side are you thinking of some person that you really are attracted to you know their physical form in your mind is not to deny maybe that person has has a 
some beauty, some attractive qualities to their physical form if you have a vision, vision in your mind, an imag imaginary vision in your mind of that person. But you just draw the mind's attention to the opposite. You know, just as you can see the pleasant in that image, is there any unpleasant there that you haven't noticed or that you're overlooking? So, you know, if you're just having in your imagination as you're trying to meditate on the breath and then your mind is taken away up by a, a nimitta, a vision of some person, either from the past or just from your imagination uh, or from, you know, from any external source and you've, you're visualizing that person, you might be attracted by their skin or the shape of their body or their hair or any aspect of their body and then you just turn the mind and think, well, what about some other aspects? So, you know, there. Look more deeply, say, if you contemplate somebody's hair, either your own hair or somebody else's hair. Your hair is not always attractive, is it? It gets smelly when you don't wash it. It gets greasy. It gets fluff and dirt caught in it. You ever seen you know, somebody with really beautiful hair but they didn't realize some piece of fluff was caught in it and walking along. <laughs> hair attracts dirt. If you don't wash it, it becomes very unpleasant very quickly after a few days. In its essence, it's unpleasant. You follow a hair back down to where the root of it is in the body. It's, the root of a hair is in the skin a hair follicle, you have a kind of a hole in the skin and, and that hair is actually drawing blood to feed, you know, how does hair grow? It's coming out of your bloodstream and blood is not very pleasant. That's just one simple example of you look at a human body and you're seeing some of the unattractive sides. You know, all the different things that ooze and come out of a human body. You know, we don't like to think of this very much. You know, the, the uh, urine or the excrement or the snot or the earwax or the sweat, the grease. But in the case of meditation, when you're calming your mind, when it may be obsessed or caught up in a very attractive form, mental form, mentally created form, you're just bringing up a reflection here to see the unattractive side. Or if you're very brave, you just can perform a bit of surgery on that image and open it up and you know, consider what's on inside a human form, skeleton and blood and bones and other things, the different organs inside. This is simply to balance your mind so you're seeing what's there, both the attractive, the unattractive, so that your mind returns to a state of calm and it can carry on meditating on the breath. And you do it like this, you investigate the particular sense object, the memory, the experience that is, is bothering you, is blocking you from, from the mind settling down and it keeps coming up. You know, if it's something more external, like a car, if you're a, you know, usually it's the guys, they like a car. You know, just imagine that beautiful car that you would like to buy, what would it look like in 20 years time after it's been driven and it's got rusty? with a few flat tires and scratches and dents and the interior has got all worn out and has gone all smelly. <laughs> you imagine that 
car of your dreams the reality of the impermanence of that car simply to counter a possible um, fixation in your mind on a car for instance you can do it in any way you want you have to be creative but this is investigating the unattractive side of something you're normally seen as attractive If it's ill will, then you go to developing the opposite of ill will, which is goodwill. Goodwill, tolerance, kindness, compassion. So many ways you can develop that as a meditation in itself. You just fix your mind on the feeling and the thought of goodwill directed towards others and towards yourself, towards others. As a way of, again, calming the mind down balancing it when it's out of out of balance and fixated on a negative thought towards oneself towards others a you know, thought of ill will or towards even just a situation a situation that one doesn't like one brings up the sort of goodwill and the positive feeling and kind feeling that generates from that to counter the negativity of the ill will and also can we can practice forgiveness if there's a person that we're particularly angry with and practice see if we can bring the mind to forgiveness to see the good in that person to see the common humanity between us and that person you know they're similar to us they have a a desire to be happy and healthy and live long just like we do even though they may have some negative characteristics habits in their behavior we might recognize that but it doesn't mean they're all bad you're seeing that all of us have some good as well as the bad and that humans are like that we sometimes we make mistakes we do inappropriate things so you can recognize that in yourself or others and forgive yourself or others If it's something more close to home, you're meditating and you have pain maybe in your leg and then you start feeling irritated that you have pain. You know, see if you can calm the mind down, those thoughts, turn those thoughts into more soothing thoughts, you know, like you would soothe your friend or your child if they were ill and they were in a lot of discomfort, you might say something soothing to them. It's that same attitude you're developing as you meditate. You might have some pain in your knee or somewhere. You start sending your mind to soothe that pain. You're still aware of it. You know it's happening and you know you maybe can't get rid of it, change it. But you're becoming more tolerant of it and just soothing your own thoughts down, calming the mind down. Learning to be at peace with that pain. And when you become at peace with something, you tend to understand it better. And then it's much easier to tolerate and be with the thing that you don't like. So that's just one example how you might deal with ill will. Another common source of ill will is frustration at the lack of progress in practice. So we might, especially if you come for a one-day retreat, you say, oh, I've given up my day, I'm here, I'm going to meditate and I'm not peaceful once you notice you're not peaceful you know you're not realizing the reason you're unfrustrated is because you maybe had a very high expectation and that's not being met yet 
instead of seeing that as the cause, you're saying, well, I'm not peaceful, I must be too lazy, or I'm a bad person, or I've got too much bad karma, or it's because of other people, there's too much distraction, people moving on around and making noise. You know, your mind might settle on some excuse for this lack of peace or lack of achievement in your meditation, when really it's actually your own mind doing it to itself. It's just saying, oh, I want to achieve, I haven't achieved, and then you go to frustration or anger. So again, you might have to remind yourself in your meditation to be patient, to let go, to go back to mindfulness and so on. You use your own wisdom at that time to let go of the hindrance. And sometimes it's quick and sometimes you have to work very hard and be very diligent. But you take it as a challenge, your own personal challenge. Can I let go of this anger? Can I accept the way my mind is and the way things are and then just let go of the anger and that's your challenge and maybe you know some people when they meditate they say oh if I'm still angry I'm not even going to get up from this meditation I'm not going to stop I'm not going to leave the hall until I've quelled my own anger you know they get really determined maybe they turn their kind of angry mind on itself but in a good way you can do it in a good way if you're careful and you be firm with yourself, just like you're firm with somebody who's behaving badly or something. You say, look, you can't do that. No, 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 you've got you've to change. But you're doing it to yourself. And you say, oh, no, 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 I'm not going to think like this anymore. These thoughts are too unkind, too negative. They're causing me a lot of suffering. Yeah, if you're able to, maybe, you just turn your attention around like that. And you don't give in to anger. Especially once you've understood anger as a source of suffering and you recognize and know that, you don't want to tolerate it too much. You want to be firm with yourself and say, no, no, I'm not going to give in to this anger. I'm not going to be angry. But that comes through meditating and understanding your own mind better. And you become a little wiser. And it's as if you're looking up from a high place down at yourself and you say, oh, when I'm angry, I'm suffering. So you... You make a decision that I'm not going to give in to this anger. I'm not going to feed this with more angry thoughts. I'm not going to act on this anger. I'm not going to think about it. I'm going to let it go. That's not suppressing it. It's not squashing it or denying it. It's just recognizing anger as a source of suffering and, and not giving in to it because you know it's going to be suffering. So they're just some examples of how to deal with hindrances. The main thing, when you establish more mindfulness, you get to know a hindrance as a hindrance. And you see doubt as doubt. See, you are aware of drowsiness as drowsiness arising. And that leads on to the next thing, well, your effort to overcome the hindrance. And, you know, it requires practice. You know, sometimes you have to work for a long time before you can get through drowsiness keep nodding and you sit up straight maybe open your eyes nod again sit up straight open your eyes maybe get up walk around wake yourself up come back sit again nod again get up maybe you have to do many many times before you get to the point where your mind is bright enough sharp enough not to fall into the dream state which precedes drowsiness if you're, you know, if you've ever done an all-night meditation, we do them here sometimes. You know, you know what it, it's like. You might have to battle for many, many minutes, 
But if you've ever done it once, you get through drowsiness. Oh, then the mind goes to a very bright place and it's like another little victory for you. Oh, I managed to get through that one. And you go back to a space where you're bright and your mind is awake. And you've done it through your own efforts, bringing up awareness and bringing up effort in the practice. We can do other things that help to brighten the mind. You know, sometimes when you're drowsy, it's good to just recite something in your mind, something that you know, like chanting or sutras. Or you can do walking meditation. You can go and have a wash. I even know some monks who jump into cold mountain streams because they're sleepy and they don't want to give in to sleepiness. That might be a quite extreme one. Another question. When you have established a meditation routine and have experienced a long period of peace and contentment and then seem to lose the contentment, what attitude should you take to this? Well, it's uh, a good attitude to develop this sense of patience and willingness to accept the fact that in our meditation practice and our spiritual progress, you know, it's not all um, progress, 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 progress. There's a little bit of up and down. Sometimes we have some retreats and some change goes on in our mind, but then you can turn that into part of the practice and you learn from that. If you have periods where you lose your peace, lose your contentment, then you, you know, oh, I've lost my peace, I've lost my contentment, this is what it feels like. But if you are seeing it as part of the practice, you don't just get caught into, say, despair or disappointment. You might go deeper and say, well, what's happened? <laughs> Why has this happened? There may be some causes, maybe something in your lifestyle has changed or something in your own effort has changed or your own attitude has changed. And when you're keen to train your mind, you really want to free your mind from stress, from suffering, then you're willing to look at things more closely, more deeply. You have to be honest with yourself and you have to maybe say, well, what's happened? If I have lost my sense of contentment, you know, maybe it means your mind is putting its priorities elsewhere in things that cannot bring much contentment. You know, so sometimes people, they do meditate and get a lot of peace and insight from it and then they get caught up with other things. So they start doing more work or social things or going here or going there and their actual effort in their meditation starts to drop. They literally spend less time meditating. I mean, I don't know how many people have told me this. You know, used to meditate an hour every evening, very, very diligent. Now I just watch TV. <laughs> well, of course, if you give up meditation for TV, then you'll get the contentment of someone who watches a lot of TV, which is not very much. <laughs> if you ever hear people who watch TV, they're always complaining about what the quality of what's on TV. And the actual state of mind is one of, you know, you watch TV, you're constantly dependent on external stimulation. So it's a bit like 
somebody, you know, when you get a bad leg and you need a crutch or a walking stick to help you walk with your bad leg. It's like you've got a bad mind, you need something to cr lean on, so you have, always have a TV or some kind of external stimulation. You know, in truth, that's, that's how it tends to be, isn't it? We tend to look for distractions and, and things which seem entertaining, interesting, but the long-term result is actually weaken our mindfulness and our sort of independence of mind. And we get obviously get caught up in the content of what we watch and the mind moves from one story to the next, one issue to the next, one thing to the next. And it, that's not going to lead to contentment, is it? That's going to actually stir it up and you get more emotional, more different states. If you watch, I mean, just give an example of TV, but you know, if you're, you are spending your time more and things like that, you'll tend to you know, sleep less, rest less, your mind is stimulated more, so you, naturally you think more, your mindfulness is weaker. It's harder to find happiness from meditation and you have to work harder. Well, it's the same, same old story. You, you meditate for an hour diligently and you put effort in. You might have achieved some, some peace, some awareness, but it's so subtle, perhaps you hardly notice it or appreciate it. And then you go away and you have a chat with somebody for two hours. So your, your one hour of meditation just filters away. <laughs> it just disappears like water, just running away. You, know, it's like you meditate, it's like filling up your water jar. You go off and seek distraction in conversation or entertainment or just this or that. It's like pulling the plug on your water jar and all the mindfulness, the peace and everything starts to flow away very easily. So this is why we recommend mindfulness practice in daily life to support your meditation. Um, some personal discipline in various areas sense restraint, you know, look at different aspects of your lifestyle to see what is supporting your state of mind. You know, if you're doing a lot of things which make you very agitated or stressed, then it's not surprising you might find your meditation is slipping and you don't get much peace from it because you're doing all these other things which are far more, make, make a bigger impression on your mind. So everybody has to learn this, whether you're living in a monastery or in family or you go out to work every day, whatever your situation in life is, you have to learn a good life balance between different activities, how you spend your time, what you say, what you do, where your mind is, what your priorities are in your mind. One man, he watches the stock market every day, every day, for many, many minutes, maybe even hours. Then came to the monastery and he says, he meditates every day. I said, oh, that's very good. He said, but he doesn't get any peace from the meditation. I said, oh, why not? He says, he doesn't know. I said, how long do you meditate? He said, well, five or 10 minutes every day. I said, well, that's not bad. What else do you do? Well, after my meditation, then I go back and look at the stocks and the shares for another hour or two. The mind is just going up and down with the stocks and shares. There's not enough meditation to balance it, I don't think. Uh, especially these days. So you have to look at the broad picture. 
not only the actual effort you put in into meditation, the time, but you have to look at the attitude behind why you do it and how it fits into your life. Can you share merits to those who are still alive? Well, you can, but we usually uh, call it spreading metta, just thoughts of kindness towards, directed towards others. Um, it's the same thing, Ring. It's the goodness of your heart, the goodness of your mind that you develop. You can do specific acts of goodness in your day and dedicate them to others and have a thought in your mind I'm doing this and I'm also dedicating it to others and they can be alive. And so we sometimes do that when somebody's sick. We like to do good things and think of them, maybe in they're in another place. We can meditate for others. We can obviously do physical acts and say kind words for others and so on. Um, but we would say, usually you say that spreading metta and, and practicing metta for others. In a strict technical term, sharing merit, we usually refer to the dead, those who passed away. But again, based on the mind, that the goodness you develop in your mind, your heart, you can, we say, transfer that. But that transferal is really coming through when others, the, the dead, are able to recognize or know and appreciate what you've done. So it's based on the understanding that maybe there's still some connection with the dead. Maybe they're your relative, close relative, and they died. And that connection means that they are able to be aware, wherever they've gone on after death, that you're doing good and thinking of them, dedicating to them. How do you tell Dhamma to those who don't believe? in Dhamma or the Buddha, only themselves, especially when they are your parents and you do want to practice Dhamma in the monastery. Oh. Well, my own experience, my parents didn't understand much about Buddhist teachings or Dhamma when I began practicing. But I didn't worry too much about that, partly because I myself didn't understand that much. I just had a sense it's a good thing, but I was very new. And I didn't expect them to know because they weren't brought up Buddhist and they didn't live in a Buddhist country. So I just assumed if, if Dhamma is really as good as I thought it was and as I believed the Buddha and the Dhamma and the Sangha to be, I had some faith that the quality of the Dhamma would come through over time, partly in my own practice and just my connection with it. If, that, if the Dhamma is really as good as it seems, then you know, it's only going to lead to good results. But it takes time, so you know, everyone has their own time in their own spiritual practice, their own development. Everyone takes their own time. Some come to the Dhamma quick, some slow, but if the best way to help others to understand Dhamma is practice for yourself. Get to know it yourself. So you practice what you preach. 
Nobody hates somebody more than you know, somebody who talks a lot about something but doesn't do it themselves. <laughs> we have to learn to practice for ourselves and that will give our words strength when we talk to others, have some real meaning. Or we just practice through example. You live the Dhamma, you live according to Dhamma. You try to practice generosity, live in a virtuous way, be kind to others, practice mindfulness, study the teachings and then contemplate the teachings, you yourself will gain from that and people around you should start to see that. Maybe it will take some time, sometimes it's you know, many years before people who are close to you will recognize the Dhamma that you're practicing and the goodness of the Dhamma. Because maybe they have their own karma, maybe they have their own attachments to other things and other cultures and other traditions or maybe they're just especially if it's parents maybe they just see you as their little boy little girl even though you're 30 40 50 years old and then they're just not going to listen to their little boy or little girl very easily because most parents don't like to be taught by their children they are naturally thinking of themselves in the role as the teacher and the parent and the child is the one who listens and learns but if you can do it, it's a great thing and many people have. Many people practice the Dhamma and they gradually, through their own practice and their own skill and example and also the connections they may make. Maybe you can't teach your own parents but maybe you can bring your parents to meet a good teacher who can teach them. Because of your own practice you might meet fellow Dhamma practitioners, other people who do understand it well and you can bring your parents or anyone else who you want to help to that person, that teacher and maybe they can help even if you can't. Or you might just do it through your example and sooner or later, you know, one day they realize, oh yeah, they've been practicing Dhamma and it's a really good thing, can't find fault with it. It might take a while. Question is, does insight meditation mean to catch your mental movements, all your mental movements? Well, in, in your ultimate goal is yes, every mental movement, because you would say every mental movement is somehow caught up with the conditioning process which brings around suffering, so ignorance, conditioning, craving and attachment. That's what your mental mov movements are. And even your good ones fall into that, although they're, they're the good ones, so they're not to be abandoned, but you still realize that even your mental movements in the good way still have some kilesa attached to them. It's only the mind of the arahant, one who's completely freed themselves from the kilesa and suffering that has no more of these mental movements. So they've perfected their insight meditation. So they've seen all these mental places, mental states based on different kinds of greed, anger, delusion. They've seen them all as a Nietzsche, Dukkha, Anatta. So not self, impermanent, unsatisfactory, not self. 
They've seen that, so they don't grasp at them as self. There's no delusion of self in all these mental movements, all the thoughts and moods, emotional states. That's the, the perfection of the practice. What you'll find in your day-to-day practice is when you feel peaceful is when your mindfulness is more constant and you're not reacting to everything with liking and disliking and getting caught into different mental states and mental movements. Your mind starts to quieten down, becomes more still and there's just knowing. It's not that your mind goes to sleep or in a trance or is somehow hypnotized or anything like that. The mind is knowing but it's not moving. There's a tricky one, you say, how can you know and not move? And say so you have to practice and you start to experience it more for yourself. How do you know your own mind? Will you develop this quality of knowing through mindfulness practice? And it's as if the mind is looking back at itself and you develop the knowing more and more and more and that's your foundation, and that's the stillness, the quietness but then there's the thing that you have to know, and that's the movements of the mind. Ajahn Chah had a funny phrase. He used to say, do you know what still flowing water is like? You, know, you have to stop and think of still flowing water. So it's water that is flowing, but still. And he's talking about the mind of vipassana, where your mind has its stillness, meaning it has constant mindfulness. You're practicing mindfulness, you're sustaining that. But at the same time, you're allowing movement, the flow of the water as well. And it's not disturbing the mindfulness. So you're seeing a thought arise and pass away. You're seeing emotional states arise, pass away. You're seeing sensations. You're knowing different sensations. You have a pain in your leg or your back. And you're seeing it and knowing it. But there's a part of the mind that is separate not just reacting with aversion, liking or disliking, but it's actually just knowing from a place of stillness, but there's still mental movement sort of going on. So it's a little bit of a difficult concept at first, but when you practice mindfulness, you start to see, you start to see your own thoughts arise, pass away, and you can understand better, oh yeah, when I'm mindful, I seem to be catching things better. I'm more in touch with myself and my moods and my thoughts. When I lose my mindfulness, I'm gone. And the mind is all over the place. So you do become more familiar with this. When I I meditate, I have a lot of tearing, tears happening, but without any emotional stuff going on. Lumpur said it is pity, rapture. This has been lasting three or four years since I started meditating and it is still going on and no one seems to know why. Well, as Lumpur said, it's pity. So when you meditate, you might have pity arising every time. So if you meditate four years, you get four years of pity. If you get 20 years of pity, you get 20 years of pity. I still get tears coming when I meditate. Sometimes just a tiny bit, sometimes drenched. <laughs> and you just can't do much about it. It's part of the, um, the quietening down of the mind. It's one of the factors of samadhi. So if you practice meditation regularly, 
your mind calms down regularly, well these different factors of samadhi arise. So sometimes you get different states of PT, some people uh, get tears, some people get hair stand on in, all the body goes kind of itchy, tingly. Um, as it gets deeper, your pity becomes a great sense of fullness. Fullness. Sometimes as it develops, you get feeling of the legs disappear, the arms disappear, maybe the whole body disappears. And you're just left with the awareness of the mind, but the sensation of the body is gone. And that might happen regularly, all the time. And pity, if you practice regularly, there'll be a certain amount of pity which just stays with you doesn't necessarily disappear uh, and so then you know maybe it will come you're just talking to someone normally you maybe just have a thought of some aspect of Dhamma and then tears start flowing and it's not that you're in an emotional state or all upset or anything but it's just the Dhamma and the tears start to come or you, you, know, you might you might be inspired by um, a Dhamma reflection so you know here in the forest you always and meeting dead animals or dying animals, you know, little ones, big ones, sometimes big, very big ones like deer. And you meet a deer and you just sort of stop and you, oh, it's suffering, you know, the life of an animal is suffering and then you get tears coming. It's not you're overwhelmed with sadness, it's just contemplating impermanence and the difficulties of living in this world. Or you hear some news, you know, somebody uh, does something very good. It can be pity in a very positive way as well. You know, somebody has had a good meditation and you feel joy. You know, somebody's recovered from an illness and you feel joy, and they'll feel joy as well. So pity comes from many kind of directions through Dhamma, and maybe just every time you meditate, you might get tears forming. Some people are like that. So I wouldn't worry about it at all. I wouldn't think much about it at all. We'll just carry on practicing mindfulness. You'll notice sometimes pity comes strongly, sometimes weakly. It's impermanent. It's another condition of mind. Like sukha, sukha, this feeling of contentment, calm. That can be very, very deep and profound, and the mind just feels so calm it's not bothered by anything. And that can last for a long time, and then it maybe it disappears again. And these are experiences that come, but try not to make anything out of them too much. Just note. Oh, there's some pity today. Easier if you're a lady. If you're a man and you keep crying in front of everyone, it's difficult. Can you please guide us in a session of insight meditation? Ooh. Maybe I'll uh, say a few words in the next sitting meditation after the next walking session quite long now, is listening to the sound of silence not necessarily reaching to, leading to wisdom development? Well, there's many vehicles for developing wisdom. Strictly speaking, you might say vipassana, they say is clear knowledge and vision of the way things are or clear seeing of the way things are and you know there's many ways your mind will calm down as you meditate you can recite buddha or think of the buddha you can follow the breathing you can do 
metta meditation, you can contemplate the body. There's many, many meditation techniques to calm the mind and make it suitable for developing insight, vipassana. So the sound of silence, you know, using that could be a very valid way if you find it helpful. You go to that sound, the ringing in the ears, where you're focusing on that rather than any other external object or any other object. And if you find that calms the mind down enough that your mindfulness is sustained, then maybe you can contemplate from that as well. It's probably just one of many techniques. Usually I start meditating with sound of silence, but don't... something contribute to the calmness of mind, but not other development. Not sure what it says, but contribute to the calmness of mind, but not other development. Well, as I was saying before, if you find it helpful, fine, you can carry on using that. If you don't, or it's confusing, well, you can try some of the other techniques to help. Sometimes you might find sound of sound of silence useful. Sometimes you might not. Depends on your character, I think, partly. There's a last question here. Should we fear death? Is anyone who doesn't fear death? I would say we all fear death. Yeah. Should we fear death? Well, ultimately, no. That's part of the practice, isn't it? Is learning that death is actually something not to be feared. Ajahn Chah used to say, you know, when, when a baby's born, everybody gets excited and happy and have parties and all the relatives gather around because they're so happy, which is true, but Nobody thinks one day this baby's got to die. You know, if you said that, everyone would say, oh, you're just a sour grapes, get out of here. No one would want you to hear that, would they? But when a baby is born, there's only one thing you know about that baby, and that's one day it's got to die. <laughs> you don't know when. You might have a long, healthy life, and you hope for that, but you might die young, middle-aged, old-aged. You don't know when or why or how it will die either. Nobody knows when they're going to die, how they're going to die. But we tend to forget that. We overlook that truth, don't we? When a baby's born, we just think about the happiness and look, look forward to a whole life of all kinds of things, uh, which isn't wrong, but if it leads you to overlook death, that's where the fear of death starts to grow, isn't it? It's coming from ignorance of the truth. It's coming from... Partly a denial of truth, partly a not accepting of truth. Um, when in fact death is as natural as a birth. A baby's born, there must one day be a death from that birth. It's as natural as birth and yet we don't like that part. <laughs> it's a story, we don't like the ending of that story. We only like the beginning of that story. Uh, Another, another way of looking at it is you know, we don't like old age even, not, not just death, we don't even like old age because it's close to death and when we get older you know, we don't look so good or feel so good and maybe, maybe can't do as much when we're younger, not always. 
But, you know, it's again, it's part of life. We age every second of this life, we're aging. So it's truth that we shouldn't ignore or deny, but it's something to learn from. We are, we're learning every day, but we miss it, don't we? Like We all like, when we eat fruit, nobody buys unripe fruit. Nobody buys sour, unripe mangoes, sour, unripe bananas. Nobody eats them. We like mature fruit, ripe fruit, because it's sweet and tasty. That's aging, isn't it? You eat the ripe fruits, you like that. But we don't want the ripe old age of a human being. <laughs> but they're both as natural and as true as each other. So we're actually dishonest with ourselves in this world, aren't we? We, we don't really kind of accept the truth of the fact or we do get older. Don't like to talk about it. Like people don't like it when I talk about it. I talk about it a lot, and they all get a bit uncomfortable. And oh, we're all going to get old. We've got to die. <laughs> they actually did research on this once. They said the more you talk about old age, sickness, and death, the more people feel like that. <laughs> They've done psychological surveys and things, and people hear the. Uh, you're talking about some aspect of aging or death, and then they walk out of the room, and they all sort of. They're looking a bit gloomy and their back is bent and they're going to <laughs> It's a psychological thing. The more you think about it, the more you talk about it, then we tend to feel a little bit down physically and mentally. And yet it is something we should turn to face a bit more so that we can prepare for it wisely. You, know, you can't prepare for something wisely if you just ignore it or hide away from it or deny it. We should contemplate it. So we can contemplate it as a meditation, a meditation on death, where you constantly recite in English, you know, I am sure to die, or death is certain, or death. Or you could use the Pali words, you know, maranang maniatang, or maranang maranang maranang. You do it as a recitation, like a mantra, and to bring your mind to the present moment because that's what the recollection of death does, isn't it? It cuts out the concern about the past and the planning and the concern about the future. It just brings your mind to the present moment when it's done properly. And some people find that very peaceful and liberating because they just drop everything when they think about death. So that can be a very effective meditation technique to forget all the other thoughts, all the trivial stuff, all the unimportant stuff. You just set it aside just focus on the fact that you will die for sure. And what's left is what you know in the present moment. And when you're going to face the moment of death, all that you've got left that has real importance is your mind. And if your mind is peaceful and you have mindful awareness, well, that's the best preparation. So in a way, way, you're actually preparing for death right now on this retreat, even though we don't talk about it too much because then you get too depressed <laughs> or afraid even. But actually, this is what you're doing. So Ajahn Chah, he didn't worry about these things. He didn't have to worry about political correctness and all that stuff. People would come into the monastery and he'd say first things on that. He'd say, are you ready to die? And he'd go, oh. <laughs> you just think the worst, don't you? If the teacher says, are you ready to die? You think, oh no, what's going to happen? 
puts you on a spot, but it's actually him just poking deeper into you and seeing where your attachments are. You can ask yourself, yeah, am I ready to die? What does death mean to me? You know, some people have never even brought the thought up once in their life. They just, oh, don't talk to me about death. But you could do it, couldn't you? Well, what does death mean to you? When you die, what will happen? You leave everything you love and like behind. So all the people you know you leave behind, all the physical, material things you have, your house, your possessions, your beloved possessions, the thing you love most in this world, all must leave behind. The world itself you leave behind, buildings, trees, mountains, whatever aspect, Melbourne, Australia, Thailand, Sri Lanka, you leave behind. What's left is just your mind, isn't it? That's the last thing you'll know. You know, wherever your mind is at the moment of death is will be the last thing you know. So, you know, if your mind is with the breath, maybe the last thing you know is just breathe in, breathe out very peacefully. If you practice that, maybe you can do that. Or a thought of loving kindness as you're dying. You're just thinking about other people. Thinking about, oh, may all beings be well and happy with nothing and not a worry in your mind, that would be a beautiful way to die, wouldn't it? Some people do, they die with that thought in their mind because they practice that. They're people who've practiced and probably for many years. You know, if you practice now while you're not close to death, then you're preparing long term, then you've got a good chance to die peacefully because you've developed some understanding, some peace and calm from meditation, you understand about your mind and what's important. The alternative is it's a bit of a lottery, isn't it? Or if I don't do anything, well, I'll die with a random mind state. It just depends what comes up, and it could be anything. They say when you die, your memories of your life pass before you very, very quickly. So if you've got a lot of good memories from doing a lot of good, well, that's probably okay. If you've got some more dodgy memories, hmm, maybe it's not so good. If you want to leave it as just random, that's not so so wise perhaps. Perhaps do a little bit more practice and then you've got more certainty to how you're going to face death. When you're ready, then you, know, you come and stay here in the monastery. We can put you up in a very simple platform in the forests. We've got some of the world's most deadliest snakes here. And you can meditate. And maybe those snakes will come past and you're, oh snake maybe it could kill me and then you really see the fear of death that's one one example uh, or you might not need to do that you might just wait until one day you might fall ill and you maybe get a serious illness sooner or later we all do and you might think oh maybe this illness will be the last illness i have and then that really really will force you to consider death but you know ideally you don't want to wait till that time Think about it now while you're in a, in a good state and you've got time and you can get your priorities right when you, you face the thought of death. Obviously, if you do fear death and you have fear come up, that's something you've got to work with. You've got to investigate it and ask, well, what are you losing when you die? Right. <laughs> When I came to Australia, they uh, gave me the last teaching I was given before I came to Australia in Thailand was one the Buddha gave to the first 60 disciples who went off to spread Buddhism around India and around the world. They were a bit 
concern, you know, going into non-Buddhist societies, into places they've never been before. What's going to happen? Is there going to be any problems? Are people going to be threatening or difficult? And so the Buddha said, oh, when you go into these foreign lands, if the people come past and they see you as a Buddhist monk and they don't know you and they're a bit suspicious or they're disrespectful, what will you do? And the monks thought, and they thought, oh, well, we'll have to reflect. Well, if they're disrespectful, at least that's better than scolding us. They just sort of show their face or something. And the Buddha said, well, what if they do scold you and they abuse you? Well, we'll have to reflect. At least that's better than them you know, throwing stones or throwing things at us. Well, what if those people actually start throwing stones or sticks and trying to hurt you? Well, we have to reflect, I guess, that that's better than them actually cutting us down limb by limb. Well, what if they actually start cutting you down limb by limb? How will you reflect then? Then we'll have to reflect, well, at least it's better than them killing us. Well, what if they actually try to kill you? Well, I guess we'll have to reflect, we've been dragging this body around many years now. It's about time we gave it up and just let go. And the Buddha said, correct answer. <laughs> because they were all enlightened beings, so they're all ready for whatever the world had to bring their way, because they knew that oh, the nature of this world is an Icha Dukkha Anatta, it's impermanent. This body, this mind is impermanent, doesn't last forever. We must die one day. It's not that you're looking for death or hastening death, you just understand it's natural process from life, from birth, you go through aging to death. If you can reflect on that often, then it makes your mind wise, it makes, brings insight to your mind and you understand and accept this truth. So that's, we've just gone over the question time, so maybe I'll leave it there for now and we can uh, have we got a 45-minute walking meditation session. So if you'd like to use that time, you can, to walk meditation outside. If you want to carry on sitting, you can. And then we'll be back in here in 45 minutes.